Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottoms. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to 2021. We've got a great guest to kick off this new year. It's a grassroots discussion with John Hearman, a farmer from Northeast Colorado. John was a guest at one of our events back in 2016 and really got our gears turning when it came to thinking differently about how we saw our management practices. He challenged us to look at how cover crops were changing the way soil functioned. John really had a paradigm shift when he saw the rainfall simulator showing five different management systems. And when he saw that that no-till pan with no cover had almost as poor of an infiltration rate as conventional till, that really started his gears turning. But when they flipped over that tray with the no-till and cover crops with good residue, and John saw the way the water percolated through the soil, he changed his philosophy and began building that new plan to build his soil health. So join us as Monty and John dive in and debunk a few myths about cover crops in dry areas and so much more. So we'd love to welcome today on the podcast, John, you've been someone that we've known for quite a few years. Monty asked you to speak to our dealers uh, back in 2016 in Denver. And at that time, cover crops and grazing livestock and that type of thing was uh, a pretty fresh concept for a lot of folks to be hearing. And you came and talked about what you were doing, the things that were happening to the soil, but we'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that journey and then also what you, what's been happening since we were last together. Yep, sure. Um, you know, I kind of came back to the farm and was kind of farming like everyone else around the area, I guess, and that uh, wasn't growing a whole lot of different crops. We just had weed and millet or something out here and had long periods of letting the ground idle and be fallow. Um, the concept was we were trying to conserve moisture by not letting anything grow. But as I um, got into the soil health journey and started listening to other people and hearing about cover crops and just kind of looking at Mother Nature and how Mother Nature uh, likes something growing on the soil, it kind of got me hooked on cover crops and, and doing stuff different and trying to promote my soil health, I guess. So back in 2016, when I spoke um, with you guys, um, I was probably just getting started in that journey. Um, maybe I've probably been a year or two into it, I guess. So as far as results at that time, I mean, maybe I was starting to see it, but as I've kept, kept after it pretty hard the last five years. Um, so, and I wasn't the guy that did, you know, the first year, I guess I did a 20 acre strip of cover crops. And then after that, I just did my whole farm, whether it was after I combined the cash crop, whether I planted a cover crop or some, you know, as I've progressed, some of my, some of my fields now I've, you know, took out of crop production for the year and actually planted a cover crop grazing crop cocktail as my, as my crop instead of actually something you harvest with the combine, I guess. 
Um, so yeah, over the past five years, or specifically the last two years, or this last year, I would say, um, some of my soil tests, like not the conventional ones, but like the Haney test and some of those tests have come back and shown some really cool things where I got enough microbial activity and, you know, it's not calling for any nutrients need to be applied or anything. And, and that's on, you know, that might be one out of my 10 fields I have that maybe it was a little soil wise ahead of the others, but it seems like this last two years that some of those tests have come back and like, Oh wow. You know, this is kind of working. It's, it's catching up now The you know, those first years are kind of tough where you're putting the money into cover crop seed and doing things different and trying to figure things out. And you're not always seeing, you know, economic results right away, I guess. But as, as time has progressed, then I think I'll be money ahead down the road because I made that investment up front, especially in these times where you can reduce any inputs or anything to help you improve your bottom line. It, it's sure helpful. So Absolutely. John, one of the things too that I think it's important for folks to know is where you're located. And you mentioned a little bit about, you know, you had you practice fallow uh, ground and things like that to conserve water, but you found that there were other things that needed to be happening. And I'm wondering if you'll tell folks a little bit about your geographic area and, and what, what your experiences are there. Yep. I'm out in Northeast Colorado on the semi-arid plains. Um, our average rainfall is about 17 inches of rain and snow, um, maybe an inch and a half, two of that might come from snow, maybe three, just depends on the year. But so we, we do get some snow, but um, we have super high evaporation rates and a lot of wind and stuff, especially in the summer. Um, so I guess the one, it's always been the idea that you can't have things growing out there to conserve moisture. But um, I guess the one thing that really made me buck that trend or when I saw the NRCS rainfall simulator at the no-till on the plains in Salina, Kansas. They had they had five different management pans showing the water runoff and the water infiltration. And at that point, I was doing no-till, but I was still having fallow. And they had one of those samples there, and I couldn't believe how much water did not infiltrate even that no-till sample they had there because I had no cover. Um, it was just as it was almost as poor as the conventionally tilled sample um, with no cover. And then when they dumped over the tray with no till and good cover crop and good residue on it, and it was just, there was zero runoff and it just all percolated into the soil. When they flipped that tray over, I was like, man, what, are, what am I doing? So at that point in time, I, after seeing that, I was like, I'm done doing fallow. I'll do you know, I might I might have short periods in there where I transition in crops or something, but I've, you know, I might have before it might be 300 days. Now it might be, you know, 20 days at most where I don't have anything growing out there. So, um, so I guess my philosophy is where, you know, if we get, let's say we got 20 inches of moisture, but you didn't grow anything for that, you know, eight, 10 months or a year, you know, yeah, maybe your soil profile is full, but your soil's depleted and can only hold four inches of moisture or whatever. So what'd you do with the other 16 during that time period? You might as well use the moisture you get and have plants growing and photosynthesize um, and put carbon and root exudates back into the soil and start building your soil back up so that you can 
store more of that moisture. And I think when you first start it kind of, especially if you're starting a dry year out here, growing the cover crops and stuff, it's going to deplete your moisture. But I think as you build your system, you can start getting that um, water bank built bigger and bigger so that, you know, you're, you're still using some, yes, but you can recover it more quickly and your soils have just improved. I, I think we get in the mindset of you can't do that because you're used to things being done a certain way. It's like, um, I feel like we're trying to grow crops in a Dixie cup out here. You know, you got to water that Dixie cup every day. If, especially if it's outside in the heat and the sun and it's not covered and it's just baking. But as you improve your system, all of a sudden, you know, you can, your flower pots just get bigger and bigger and they can start, you know, holding more water and, and you can do different things. You can grow different things and just, you see things differently because you've changed the, the way the system is or how it originally, how you originally viewed it, I guess is, is where I'm coming from. So. Well, I remember you sharing that story with us about the the Dixie cup versus a flower cup versus a, yeah. we want, we want to build a huge tanker. So <laughs> that's, yep. that's incredible. Uh, thanks for sharing that context. Give a little background here to all of our listeners. If you're in the Eastern half of the United States, you're typically trying to get rid of excess water in you in the spring and you're typically dealing with too much up front and then you, then you dry out in August. Now, John here, he starts out dry and you just stay dry. See, so yep. He's, yep. he's always, he's always fighting, um, you know, having enough water to grow a crop that balance between how much crop can we produce versus how much water is in the soil and what does it look like projected for this year? And, and, and you're not like those other guys that cheat that you go out and throw a switch and you have rain, correct? No, I'm all dry land, so yeah. no, no pivots we, we for me. We call that yeah. uh, God's irrigation district, right? So yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a matter yeah. of what he decides to send is what you get. So yeah. uh, the management challenges are extreme. Um, and a little bit about, um, I'm, I'm going to help. He mentioned that they get a little bit of wind there. Okay, so people in other parts of the country complain when it's a windy day about, you know, 20, 25 mile an hour, like it was here yesterday, it was 20 or 25 mile an hour, but he's like, oh my, that's windy. John, a 20 to 25 mile an hour wind, that's just a nice little breeze, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's that, we've got a, this year's been terrible, just like everything else, but we got, we had a derecho or something come through earlier in the spring, and I just got my kids a new wooden swing set at place, and I thought, oh, there's, I even had it fenced down with some T-posts and some wire, I thought, oh, there's no way that'll, no, but no, I just ripped the T-post out of the ground and flipped it right over. So, yeah, we, we get we get pretty windy. So 50 and 70 mile an hour winds are, are not uncommon. And right. uh, one of the, now, do you pay your neighbors for the soil that you capture from them uh, <laughs> because of their bare ground is blowing and your cover crops are, are capturing the soil? Do you, do you feel bad about that? And do you, do you, uh, you know, give them, figure out how many tons they send you and, and send them a check or? No, I, I haven't done that yet. But, well, um, you should yeah, think they, about they, that, John. <laughs> they, they like to give me snow sometimes, too, so that's helpful, too. Yeah. So talk, um, to continue on the context here a little bit, talk about the snow and, you know, and, and certain people use stripper headers and how important that is. Most people don't think of the water content in snow. In fact, uh, when Suat Ermak talked to us from Nebraska, he never could get all of his water calibration models to work right on crop use until he figured out you got to count for the snow. 
because most people just ignore snow as part of their precipitation. But talk to us about how critical snow is in your area. I mean, in such a low rainfall environment, you got to utilize whatever you get and you got to utilize it efficiently. So, um, you know, say out of our 17 inches, maybe two or three of that is um, comes from snow. But if you don't have your system set up to capture that snow, because most of the time when it snows here, it's a sideways snow or, you know, shortly thereafter, maybe it comes down straight, which you rarely see, but um, just the sheer wind of it will, if you don't have standing residue or anything to keep that snow in place, uh, Mother Nature will move it off to the next person that has something to catch it. So, you know, if just by changing your management, and um, like I use it, <clears throat> I use the Shelbourne on almost every, you know, cereals and everything I can to try and leave as much standing residue out there. Um, so, I mean, if you can have six, eight, ten inches of something standing out there, or, you know, if I have crops that like soybeans or peas, I don't grow soybeans, I grow some peas once in a while. Um, but I started actually putting cereals in with the peas and then, um, killing the cereals and just harvesting the peas. So I have a little bit of carbon out there to help catch snow or, or even planting a cover crop right after harvest those peas in the summer so that I can have something standing back out there. Or sometimes I just even let the weeds grow longer than, you know, just if I got weeds growing out there, let them get big and kept capture some snow. Because if you change your management and don't get that snow, then you just, move yourself down three inches in annual rainfall and sometimes in a dry year that might mean the difference between a crop and no crop and when I was younger I remember harvesting wheat with my dad and some dry years when um, we were doing conventional tillage and summer fallow and stuff and I didn't know what it was at the time but there's like all these little fairy rings um, in the field where you can see there's like a um, hard to describe it's kind of like a lake or around the lake there'd be like super good wheat like and it'd be just be in this random pattern um and then in between there the wheat would be real bad with no grain in the heads or anything and i didn't realize what that was till i was older and when you look at the snow and how it blows in the winter on a tilled field you know there'll be ridges where it'll pile up and and sit there on that field and that's what that was in a dry year was you would see that six months later at harvest time that where that snow blew and piled up in that field around these rings that the we had enough moisture to make a decent crop but where there was no snow it was you know zero yield almost so well in a light rainfall year maybe 10 inches if you capture three inches of water in snow i mean that's 30 percent more water or in a normal right. year it's it's 20 percent more water so that that is that is huge, and it, it takes right. you know roughly eight inches period just to grow the crop, uh, to to grow it without any reproduction. So, you know, you just kind of subtract that off of the of the of the bottom line. Then anything you can add on top of that just goes purely to harvestable yield. So, it, right. it's it's a huge deal, and I think you know people outside of your area may not understand that context, but even people inside your area. Uh, still don't because um, right. if they did, they, yep. <laughs> you know, they would they would be running shellborns. They would be doing more no-till and, and those kind of things. So that's interesting too. How you're doing the uh, cereal crop with the um, peas because of the you know low carbon content in the peas that really helps that from blowing away, doesn't it? 
I mean, holds yep. it in place. And, you yep. know, flowers are bad about that, too. Uh, they just leave right. no no um, residue on the surface, and the, and the soil just, just goes away. So Right. Interesting. And then, yeah, like I had some chickpeas. I grow some chickpeas, but if you put flax with them, then you got something else to just give you a little stem to help. And like some some things I'm doing now, you can harvest together and separate later. So right. you don't and, even and have to take them out. So plus the structure, the climbing, I would assume helps with the harvesting ability a little bit. You're not right. You're not you're picking yep. it up but easier. So um, seed separation, we're we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. Um, but yeah, three things I really wanted to, to nail um, nail down with you today. One was you know the context, so people kind of understand that context and. And if you are in more of the eastern half of the United States, so let's say Missouri River and east or, you know, middle of Nebraska, Kansas and east, you may not have a dry year every year, but you're going to have a dry year one every 10 years. You know, so these same right. techniques will prepare you for that one in 10 when everybody else is, you know, complaining at the coffee shop, you know, you're still getting in a, you know, a, a decent yield. And I've always found that... Uh, Prices seem to be just a little bit better in those dry years. I don't know if you've noticed that, John, but that's, yeah, a, yeah. That, that's, a, that's an okay thing. We're going to take a quick break to hear more about the opportunity to join us virtually for this year's Ag Emerge event. We invite you to come explore the possibilities of scaling up regenerative agriculture during Ag Emerge 2021. This year's conference will look a little different as a virtual on-demand event. However, what remains the same is our passion for sharing unique perspectives from thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward-thinking growers like you. From the comfort of your home, office, or tractor cab, we'll explore soil health and regenerative agriculture and how you can take concepts to practice in your operation through shared experiences, new ideas, and big-picture discussions. Registration is open. Visit agemerge.com to register today. Well, we hope you'll consider this unique opportunity to hear all the great speakers at Aggie Merge this year, especially since you can join from anywhere, virtually. Now, back to our special guest, John Hearman. So, uh, two, two myths I really wanted to dive into with you. Uh, is One is, guys say, I can't grow cover crops. It's, it's too dry. I don't have the water to waste. Okay, that's, and you've touched on that a little bit. I want to dive into that a little bit. And the second myth I want to dive into is thinking that cover crops are only a cost. And which one would you like to dive into first? Oh, we can, since we're on the water one, we can go with that one probably. Okay. So um, talk to us a little bit about the myths uh, associated with that. And, and let's get in a little more nuts and bolts of what you've seen uh, with different maybe cover crop mixes or you know, with and without cover crops, uh, how much water is going through the cover crop, what does that leave for the crop, uh, and, and all those kind of things. Why would a person in northeast Colorado, western Nebraska, or western Kansas uh, think they've got any water money to spend on a cover crop? I would say if, if you have any fields um, – that after, if you, if you go out, sometimes we get, you know, thunderstorms in the summer. They dump, you know, a fair amount. It might be an inch in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Um, you know, they're they're in and out. It's not a day-long rain like you have back there east. It's, and then, then it's 20 minutes and, and it's gone. So And sometimes it's that slow-release rain, too. You, yeah. You know what that is, right? I don't know about that one. Uh, oh, it's hail. I call that slow-release oh, rain. Gotcha. Yeah. 
gotcha. Yeah, the others that one too. Yep. But anyway, yes, you get of... you get big thunderstorms that pop up, and they just they dump and they're done. Uh, so right. Creating a system that you, can handle that. Yeah, and if you go out right after that thunderstorm and look at your field or look at a see what see what happened to that water. We're a we're a relatively flat area, but that water still runs downhill just like it does everywhere else. And if you if your soil has not been prepared, if it's not covered, um, if it's not insulated from that raindrop impact, and if you don't have good structure, even out here, that stuff goes into a lagoon. It puddles up. There's Even in these dry years, we might get one rain, and these guys that are doing uh, summer fallow and tillage, they'll still have that lake in their field when they're drilling wheat, and if they're driving around and they can't even plant wheat in there because they got water standing. Um, you know, that's a sign of a poor soil, poor structure. So I think, it, I think it comes back to the, it's not how much rainfall you get, it's how you use that rainfall. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what your average rainfall is, I guess, if you're not, it matters what your rainfall is into your soil. So, Well, that's interesting what you mentioned there right before the, you know, the rainfall, you know, I call it. Uh, plant available water holding capacity, or plant plant available water holding capacity, but you have to get into there in order to make it available. But um, think about this: How happy would you be if you hired the co-op to come out and spin on a hundred pounds of of nitrogen? And on the tops of the landscape, they they put out about seventy five pounds, and on on the side slopes of the landscape, they put out ten to twenty five pounds. And then in the lowest portions of the landscape, they just pour it on, put on 250. How, how excited would you be to pay right. somebody to do that quality of a job? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a good analysis of what it, and that's how ex- you prepared your field to accept the water, yep. Exactly, and that's exactly what's happening. And, you know, a person would get irate about that in how many seconds? Right. Or, or, or let's, yeah. say they, yeah. let's say they sprayed, uh, you know, uh, everybody's favorite glyphosate. You know, they put a three-quarter of a rate on top, and they put a 10% rate on the sides, and then they just put 3X rate in the bottoms. How excited would people right. be about the no-weed control, the somewhat no-weed control, and then the crop damage in the bottom? Right, yep. And yet we accept that every day. Farmers are accepting that practice every day. Right, yep. Right. So anyway, sorry, we're preaching to the choir here, but I, I'm no, hoping yeah. we're going to catch a listener or two and, and yep. just because they're in their truck right now and, and, and listening, you see that they can't, they can't slap us because we're not right. next to them. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> well. But um, so you're looking at, you are, you realize you are spending some, some water to grow that cover crop, right? Absolutely. Yep. And what do you estimate you spend uh, to grow a cover crop? And I realize it's, it's different, you know. Money-wise, the acre, or like water-wise? Water-wise. I mean, um, it it depends when you're growing it, I guess. Um, But, like, after after summer harvest crops, like wheat or stuff, I've, we've had, I've worked with the NRCS, and we've put uh, moisture monitors in to compare them to not having anything growing. And come springtime, they're, they're usually pretty darn close to not have anything growing or somewhat depleted. But once you get a spring rain or some spring moisture, then you're back to where you were, you know, had you not grown anything. So, I mean, anywhere from two to 
five inches probably depending well we don't i don't get a lot of growth everyone like takes all these pictures of sometimes that happens sometimes you get six foot tall cover crops and stuff but generally after wheat harvest or after summer harvest you know it might like this year it was like four inches tall maybe and it came up like three months after i drilled it so it was it's you know i just stuck it in the ground and it but it, i did something you know when i got that rain the seed was out there and may, i think we got a quarter inch or something but it was enough to get it up and get it going and so what able I, to photosynthesize stuff and so i don't i mean one of my friends said seeds don't grow in well in the bag so you might as well put it out there so <laughs> we've got that saying too uh um you have to ask uh, my dad and ryan about that that's something we always joke around out at the shop you know hey it's not going to grow in the bag so yep. um but listen to how john is is thinking about this and how he sees this he is seeing this not as a, a waste of water he's thinking about it in a yearly context so he's not thinking about just what that cover crop does he's thinking about what it'll do later and if the seed's out there, it'll grow. It's not going to take any water if it doesn't grow, right, if you're in a very drought, uh, drought condition. But one of the things that he's doing is he's spending a little bit of water if he would have it in late summer, which is fairly rare in his area. But typically in the spring, he does get a little more than rain than what's needed at that moment. But by having those roots on the ground and providing channels for the water to go in, when he does get that rain, it's going in the ground instead of off the ground. So... Yeah, the water probes, that's really interesting that there's not that much difference in come springtime because you're probably capturing a little more snow. And then once you do get some spring rains, it catches right back up and the tank's full. Right. Okay, so can we, uh, if this was an episode of the Mythbusters, can we say this this myth is busted? (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Sure. Okay, so... how How do we help farmers get over that wasting water on a cover crop? Because I sure see they're not afraid to waste it on fallow weed control. Right. I mean, there's, there's getting to be some real jungles of kosher growing out there that people kind of get around to spraying maybe someday, and then they don't get it, and they make it resistant, and then they run sweep plows to get rid of it. I mean, how right. how do we help people get through that mental hoop? That's a tough one. <laughs> I don't know how... I always struggle with that, I guess, because just in my area, you know, I don't, it's not like people are coming to you and asking what you're doing or, you know, it's, uh, who's that crazy guy, I guess, or, you know, they look at you different at the coffee shop, but I I don't know how to get to people and, um, I don't know, do you have any suggestions or can you help me out? (laughs) I thought you had all the answers, John. No, I I think that's the, the biggest challenge. Even people are driving by, they can see the snow capture, right? They can see the differences that you have in the weed control, they could they could see. Uh, I wonder if the greatest problem is is we're not spending enough time in the fields. Yeah. Because if you could go to those fields, first off, a lot of the roads out there are just plain dirt roads, and when we get a rain, they're impassable, right? Uh, yeah. At yep. least I'm thinking western Kansas, you know, Colorado, you, you've probably got uh, highways everywhere, I suppose, right? But uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just spending time in the field, seeing what's going on, do you think that would be the the best way for farmers to experience this? Yeah, I, I think one of the big things, yeah, is if you can go right out right after it rains and see what's happening on your field, or even a couple of days later, if you can't get your equipment on the field, or if, 
or if you're getting stuck in your field, you obviously have a poor soil structure. Um, but yeah, I, I think once I started doing this uh, beforehand, I was more of a drive-by kind of farmer at 60 miles an hour, maybe. And then once you kind of started doing this, you kind of would stop and get out and go see what plants were growing and you'd have your shovel. And, or if you were grazing livestock, you'd be out there on the land anyway, moving fence or watching the cows. So I think the livestock is the one that you recognize the most in your field. If you're moving fence a lot, cause you're, you know, you wouldn't normally cover that many acres of your field or be out there walking around or driving that slow over things. So I, I think by adding the livestock, you really can see what's happening on the land. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I think by walking out there and doing different things for sure, you uh, realize some different things are happening. So just a shovel pretty much is, is your biggest indicator, I'd say. Well, one of the things I think uh, Kim and I uh, coined here oh, a few episodes back was uh, uh, the two best things you can put in your field is a shovel and your shadow. So yeah, I, uh, yeah uh, that's a good one. And and you're right about uh, moving the cattle. It yeah, you're out there. We we do daily moves, so you're out there every day. You are driving slow. You're you're running fences, and then when you're running uh, fences and you're going through draws and those kind of things, is you, you kind of get a lay of the landscape and you see how the animals are eating and where it's thinner, where it's thicker and, and those kind of things. But at minimum, so if, if people, if we want to challenge our listeners here, uh, if you don't want livestock, right, at least drive 10 mile an hour by your field instead of 60 yeah. yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and get out in one field or just take, if it gets a rain, let's face it, we're not doing anything in the field. Go, right. go look. Just just go look at what's going on with the water. And if you see it running off your field into the wash or into the neighbors, ask yourself, why am I allowing that to happen? And, right. And and it can be changed, right? It's not it's not something that you can just that you throw up your hands and say, I, I can't do anything about it. Is that true? Oh yeah, definitely can be changed. I mean the thing I've noticed the last three years is fields were historically had lagoons in them that you know i've farmed since i was a kid and i remember driving around them but and i even had some of those in no-till but as as i've used these cover crops and stuff i mean i don't my fuel usage of my tractor goes down and you just kind of float across the field and any of those low spots that historically had water are gone i haven't like i haven't made of i may have made one track in my field in the last four years from it being too wet but otherwise i just those spots you had to drive around or mark on your gps with a flag that you can you might get stuck here and it's no problem anymore you just drive right through it it's so those are those are improve like improve the so, oh. just improve the soil enough there that you got the water in there and you didn't run it off on other places so it didn't go into that low spot and just a culmination of effects and all of a sudden and so these are like prairie potholes or denny spots that you know the water yep. can't go anywhere it just collects in a in a central spot so that's right. because all the water you're wasting on cover crops john see yeah, all that water yep. gets wasted and, and it don't form a mud hole yeah i'm joking i'm joking the yep. water goes oh, where yeah. <laughs> the water goes where it falls instead of goes somewhere else so uh, I can't emphasize enough, um, one of the most resilient things that you can do as a farmer out in northeast Colorado, western Kansas, western Nebraska, is, is incorporating management practices that allow you to capture the rainfall you do get and leave it where it is and make it plant available for the next crop. 
and, and what you've done. And, and gosh, we've we've known each other for several years now, and you've done some amazing things to to make this happen. And it's not you've tried it for one year, right? And and trying to yeah. see if it's working or not. I mean, you've been doing this for you know many many years uh, to make it work. And I, right. I think pick one field, folks. Pick one field. Do it. And go watch that field, and, and don't and I, just don't just wait for a yield monitor. See what happens, what changes, right? Yeah, and I think you got to keep at it. I think we all want these immediate rewards and satisfaction of some, but it it takes time, and especially in those drier areas, it's going to take a lot more years than than you can do it back east. But um, well, I think yeah, it, just, what's interesting is that you're talking about those. It's those small incremental changes. And those are so hard for us to capture sometimes. Yield is an easy thing to see if it changed. Right. But these yeah. small incremental things, I mean, you've talked about how you noticed from being a kid and, and those swirls of snow that were there, you know, that are now, you know, you're seeing that production change because of your practices. And then you mentioned lower fuel costs for moving your tractors across the field and, and then being able to be out on that field and not leaving marks. All of those individual, what is it like death by a thousand cuts? You know, I mean, it really is all of those things that add up that that are equaling this beneficial situation and and that's what i think as you mentioned too john that it's not an overnight you know you're an overnight success 15 years later right but it yep. it's it, it, but it is those individual things that that i just uh, keep hearing you repeat and i think that's important to to notice yeah i'm sorry if we're repeating this but there's some people that need to hear it okay so <laughs> <laughs> that, that's we're, we're we're just we're just trying to beat it into them, John. I'm joking. Yeah. Um, okay. Myth number two: uh, cover crops are just a cost. Okay. I, I'd like for you to share. You've touched on many things here, as far as you know, the water, the diesel fuel savings. We really haven't talked about um, you know weed um, improvements, those kind of things. So people see the checks they write, but they don't see the checks they don't write or the revenue that they don't get. Okay. So right. it's, it's a mental thing to write that check for, Oh gosh, it cost me 15 to $20 an acre to run the cedar. And Oh gosh, it cost me 10 to $40 for the cover crop seed, depending on what you're doing. Talk about that myth of, I can't, I can't make any, I'm just spending money. It's not making me anything. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you got the seed costs, but um, like out in my area, I'm I'm usually saving a number of maybe at least one herbicide application by actually having something growing out there where I wouldn't be out fighting weeds. Or and I mean, if some of these weeds get like they are, then you're if you're using herbicide or it seems like the rates they're suggesting for you to kill that are crazy and cost wise are super expensive. So. Um, but I'm more looking at it into the long-term return of things as far as how it's improving my soil and increasing that microbial activity and how I'm, you know, as years go on, I'm able to have less inputs and have less fertilizer or use that fertilizer more efficiently um, than I do get. So, you know, like, I when we were talking earlier in the 
a segment like my one field that I've been hard after on cover crops every year and, and been doing good with it. Like I had a Haney test come back on it this uh, spring and, you know, saying that I don't need to put anything out there, you know, as far as it was a cereal crop, it was cereal rye uh, for grain. But so, you know, when that comes around after five years of, of work, if you can save, you know, 30, 40 bucks an acre or something off, off fertilizer, then you paid for, you know, that cover crop, you know, it might have took you three years of cover crop to do it, but that cover crop paid for itself, you know, right there. So, um, you know, I don't spend a lot of money on some seeds and especially it just depends on the year. Like this year was so dry and, um, you know, didn't look promising. So I, I spent like, I think I spent $8 an acre for cover crop seed. I just bought the things that I, you know, the weird things like radishes and turnips and some of that stuff. But I had some sunflowers and oats and some peas and stuff left around at home from some of my other stuff. So I just threw that in the bin, whatever I had left over and mixed that in. I put that in one of my tanks on my air seeder and the, the bot stuff from another one. So, I mean, by the time I drilled it, I was super low cost on that part of it this year, just because I knew it was you know, going to be a rough go and it wasn't going to be. So I think you just, but I, I didn't have to go out there and spray that field either when it did get a rain because I had already placed those seeds in the ground and you know, I gave them a head start on any of my, my weeds or anything. So plus I was, I, and you just gotta be, <laughs> if you're not photos as farmers, we're, it's our job to capture solar energy. And if you're, if your sun's hitting bare soil or if it's even hitting residue or litter, you know, you're not capturing the sun, it's being wasted. So if you can get a green root out there as many days of the year as you can and have something photosynthesizing and actually capturing that solar energy, um, then you're, you know, you're, you're putting that solar energy back where it should be into the, into the ground, but it's got to take a green plant as a exchange mechanism for that to happen. So if you don't have it growing, then, you ain't, you ain't capturing sunlight. So you mean to tell me that before farmers came to your part of the world, that the short grass prairie wasn't uh, planted just every other year? And, <laughs> yeah, and, right. And, and grew yeah, for the, 80 days and was harvested? Yeah, and the bison just came every like five years or something, but no. Correct. I mean, that's in, and even if you look at the Lewis and Clark stuff, you know, they talk about the different plants and different stuff. There's, I don't think there's anyone left it's old enough to remember what this area actually looked like. You know, they, they might see a native pasture now and say, Oh, that's terrible. But we, man has made that native pasture. Now it's, that's not what it was like when, when it was settled. I don't, I don't think so. I think we have a misperception of what it it is just because we've lost, it's been so many years that there's no one around to, you know, tell us what it looked like before we came. Or my favorite thing is where they have, uh, you know, back here in Illinois and other parts of the country where they have natural prairie, never been broken soil, uh, but but they won't graze it. So it's like, okay, yeah, that's real. You know, or national parks or or wildlife refuges or those kind of things, but they don't allow grazing animals. So it's like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, that that, that system works, works well without, you know, just burn it. That's what you're supposed to do, right? But, yeah. yeah, back to, I think that's really interesting. It's our job to convert the sunlight that we get into something that is of value to someone else. So, 
uh, every day that we're not capturing sunlight, we're wasting an opportunity. Uh, and I think that's a, right. a real key point that you make there. So to back up a little bit on the myth of cover crops are just a cost only, um, you know, you mentioned in three years' time by doing some intensive cover crops, which would mean probably spending more than what most people are a little comfortable doing, but all of a sudden I didn't have to write a check to the fertilizer guy. That's, right. that's a and good what thing. The, and like what, you know, what does that herbicide do for you? What does that do for your soil? What does that fertilizer do for your soil? It, it's a, just a Band-Aid for, you know, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a drug. It's like a, it's like a hit of cocaine for one time, but what's it, what's it actually do for your, for your system, for your soil? What, you know, at least cover crops, yes, an expense, but it's doing something. It's going to put money back in your pocket eventually. Whereas, you know, those other expenses and checks, you have no problem writing. Um, no, they're not, they're, they're putting money in the, in the other company's pockets. So. It does amaze me that people do not put the scrutiny on NP and K to the degree that they put scrutiny on everything else that they buy. I mean, right. seed, cover crop, or anything new, okay? So if they start right. working with our biologically-based system, they put heavy scrutiny on that. If they're working with cover crops, put heavy scrutiny on that, or certain seeds and those kind of things they really look at. But when it comes to N, P, and K, there's none of that scrutiny on it, and it just amazes me and that's that's the biggest check that we write on a per acre basis across the country you know mm -hmm. okay so myth of the cover crop uh partially busted by the fact that you're reducing your uh baseline fertilizer inputs um that's one example the weeds you talked about getting out there and even you seeded even though it was dry and it wouldn't grow but you knew that you get a rain a weed's going to come but if you have seeds in the ground that are in a better condition because in a no-till environment the seeds are typically on the surface you know they don't have good seed to soil contact when you run through with the seeder and you plant your cover crop mix in there it has great conditions at the right depth and the right seed to soil contact what you're saying is it's going to germinate everything at once and because as a farmer i planted the the weeds i wanted in a in a good way versus getting the weeds that nature is going to send um, you're gonna you're gonna outrace essentially the the weeds that you don't want, correct? Yep. Yeah, you're giving giving yourself a head, a chance or a head start, or even if you do get some weeds up, and I mean, you, but you got you got quantity of the other ones to out compete. So right, and, and what quantity and uh, placement? Correct. So my dad my dad said early on when we started doing cover crops, he says, "You mean to tell me?" I've spent all these years trying to kill weeds. Now you're planting weeds. So yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> that's that's where the saying plant the weeds you want or mother nature will send the weeds you don't want. Yep. Okay. And I this this year we had something interesting happen where we had a early early frost and I had some cover crop fields with some sunflower. They were like a 15 species mix probably behind uh wheat harvest. Harvested the wheat in July, and I had like a 15-species cocktail mix. Um, I planted it in July. I think it came up end of August maybe. might have been September before it actually came out of the ground and started growing. But um, my sunflowers were probably like three, four foot tall, and we got a real hard freeze. It was down to like 26 for 
five, six hours. And at that time on Twitter, I seen all these pictures of the, in the Dakotas where it had smoked everyone's sunflowers. And, but I, I called my friend, Scott Ravencamp, who used to grow sunflowers. And I was like, man, it didn't touch these sunflowers in this cover crop mix. They, it did not touch them whatsoever, that hard freeze. And he's like, yeah, I, I've seen that too. It's the monoculture, monoculture fields. It'll, for some reason it just decimates them but when they're in a mix like that it uh, for some reason that cold of weather did not touch those flowers which was, was that was the first year i'd so I, you know, always see something new every year i guess i'd never seen that before in my years of cover crops and i've always had sunflowers and stuff in the mix but just that sequence of events was kind of interesting i was like oh you know for sure everything's going to be dead out there but you know they they kept living for another two months because they survived that that one freeze for for some reason something was going on underneath the soil but, but i don't know were they the tallest plants in the mix or were they kind of equal height with some sorghum and sedan uh, or... they, they were the tallest ones huh. yep, for sure Interesting. they so were it's... sticking out yeah they were like sticking out like sore thumbs like they were but they didn't <laughs> it was, it's bizarre i don't know but... yeah yeah so that's uh that would lend itself to either, you know, maybe extra heat production from microbial activity or something different in, you know, uh, sugar content of a plant can resisting, helps in resisting frost. Um, I mean, who knows? Uh, But that is, that is fascinating because flowers are very sensitive to frosting. I mean, it's on my place. It's one of the first things to, to go in the mix. Right. So, and I mean, like some of the leaves were brown on the edges, but they were they were still green as could be for till we got another like into the teens. Then they find then it finally got them out. But that yeah, it was just interesting because I for sure thought that those everything was going to be gone. And then you know, I kind of checked the next day, and they looked kind of okay. I was like, that's kind of strange. And I came back a week later, and they were still fine. I'm like, huh. So then I called my friend, and he said, yeah, he's noticed that before too, just in mixes. So. Well, interesting. There's there's another thing about, you know, a lot of people like to start safe, you know, with uh, one or two crops. Uh, I think um, we found that if you if you have at least eight, you know, two of each of the categories, you know, you're just right. insurance to where if yeah. four grow, you still got four, you know, where if you pick right. the wrong four, you're out of luck. So yeah, uh, I, I think it's easier just to start with a you know, uh, a mixture then to try to work your way into it. Um, right. But yeah, so you've got the, you got the weed control thing. You've got some, uh, frost, uh, mitigation types of things. You've, you've got the benefits of, uh, inputs. Let's talk a little bit more about harvesting. Like you say, companion crops and, and co-cropping, whatever the word of the day is on that, where you're putting the cereal with your peas and, and how that functionally works better. Talk, talk about that process. When do you terminate it out and, and how does that help with, um, the harvesting? Um, yeah, I've been, since I got into this cover crop deal, I've tried to, I've tried to get into the mindset of trying to eliminate monoculturing my cash crops as well. So I've been, experimenting and you know there's a lot of research of things that have been done already or people that are doing things so um like i peas is a big one that i hate how they i hate growing a straight legume um and i hate that they you know kind of decimate all my residue and i don't have anything to uh, capture snow 
Um, so I've been, I grew some winter peas this last year and I just seeded them with uh, like 10 pounds of wheat when I was uh, drilling them. And then I just, you know, I let the wheat grow as long as I could before I could get the uh, peas to flower. And then I just, you know, sprayed a grass herbicide and um, took out that wheat. That particular scenario is going to be a hard to separate a smaller pea from the wheat seed. So that scenario, I took out the wheat seed, but it, it left just, you know, I had a high enough carbon to nitrogen ratio. It was, you know, starting to put a stem and stuff that I was able to get a lot more um, residue out on that field just by bumping up that carbon to nitrogen ratio. It, it sure helped um, keep some residue on the field and keep some standing stuff out there compared to just a, a monoculture um, pea field. And, you know, I didn't adjust my pea rate any. I just added a little bit of wheat. You know, it cost me like four or five bucks an acre, maybe in, in seed. It was just some seed I had left. Um, so that scenario really helped. Um, I've grown some more winter peas, but I've been growing them with rye. Um, and I those I can separate. So I just let those grow together. And the peas, they're winter peas. So this rye and my peas are planted September, October, and then harvested next July. And those I've been growing together and, and had pretty decent su success with that because the peas just vine up the rye. And, you know, that's a totally different plant structure than when you see them, you know, by themselves. The peas are kind of bushy and just tangled with everything. But when you grow them with the rye, they're really spindly. They don't get a lot of sunlight. And, you know, they might not, you know, I'm, I'm still trying for a main crop. I'm still shooting for the rye specifically. And then any peas I can get from it as a bonus. But I just use the stripper on those um, and combine them all together and put them in the bin. And then I use my cleaner and, and set they're an easy separation with the right screens. So I've gotten to trouble with non-easy separation. So I, if you're going to start with intercropping or growing things, get seeds that are large size discrepancy or shape discrepancy. You know, I thought I was getting good. So I tried some stuff that was too close together and it's, you know, without the right equipment or the expensive cleaners, it's super hard to get some of that stuff separated or you have so much loss, you know, from maybe you can get it clean, but you got so much loss. So like the peas and the rye is an easy one to separate because rye seeds, oh, 22,000, 25,000 seeds per pound. And you got 3,200 on these winter peas. Um, like the chickpeas and flax, super easy separation. You know, chickpeas are huge and you got those flax. Um, so I'm going to try some millet, some proso millet and chickpeas next year um, because I've noticed where I've had volunteer millet in my chickpeas, it, it, things seem to do better. So um, oh, I just like putting grasses You're with in. legumes. I, I hate growing legumes or I, you know, I try to put, I'm just trying to get away from monocultures. We preach and preach these cover crops and diversity and stuff. But then, you know, if you're growing a crop for six months out of the year, that's monoculture, you're just, you know, you're lying to yourself, essentially. What are you, you know, why are you doing that? And it doesn't have to, maybe you don't have to combine it together. Maybe you can plant something that you can spray off or whatever. I think it still does a little bit of a, a benefit. So I'm just, my, my idea is I'm just trying to get away from monocultures, I guess, whether I plant something in there I take out or plant something I can combine together and separate after the fact. So interesting. Um, um, Another one of those things where you spend a little time in the field and you notice the millet and the pea interaction 
or millet and right. garbanzo and or chickpea interaction. Uh, you're not quite far enough south to be in the garbanzo zone. You're still in the chickpea zone, correct? Yeah, I don't. I'd always get confused. I go to the store and they're called garbanzos. But no, I don't know. <laughs> so um, another one of the benefits of cover crops, not just a cost center. Uh, the nutrient thing, the herbicide, uh, weed control we've mentioned. But the other thing we just mentioned, too, uh, is there's opportunities for cover crops to be cash crops. So cover crops don't just have to be, you know, terminated and plant a cash crop. You you also can harvest these uh, for seed for others, correct? I mean, they're not. Correct, yeah. And, and that gives you flexibility, too. If you've, you've got a condition or markets change, you can take a cover crop to seed and uh, depending on the scenario, correct? Absolutely. I mean, that's, well, there's always a market out there for that, you know, cover crop seed markets exploded the last, you know, number of years. So, I, you know, some, somebody's got to grow that. Why not you? I mean. Well, and obviously kinda, after today's podcast, it's going to double again. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> it, it sure needs to, but. So one thing that we've noticed is that it, there's a there's an art to the companion crops. Uh, we've been doing some work with wheat and soybeans, and also with uh, did rye and soybeans this year. Huge difference in, in uh, the soybean plant expression, and I would wonder exactly. if the peas and the garbanzos would have the same thing too. But I think the there's a lot to do with the organisms around rye and the manganese reducing reducing organisms that it it um, really prospers, I think, are probably helping the manganese um, hog <laughs> crops, if you will, of legumes. And, boy, there was some significant synergies there. We noticed a, a huge difference in yield on rye beans versus wheat bean uh, companion cropping. And uh, we did some things, too, where we harvested the wheat, you know, pushed over the soybeans, came back and harvested the, the soybeans later. But we also did some where we co-harvested now. On the co-harvest, where you're harvesting um, rye in October, when it should have been yeah. harvested in July, is not okay. the greatest for the rye um, yield. You know, there's shattered loss, right. there's mold, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. But you want to talk about something that air separator can separate faster. You get some moldy rye in there, you can bounce <laughs> that out, no problem. And the reality is, is the soybeans in this case are are in for for our needs are the cash generator. So if right. we get a few bushels of rye out of it, fantastic. But if we can, these were non-GMO beans, never had herbicides applied because the rye suppressed the herbicides. And we planted the rye at about 15 pounds the acre in the first week of December. Okay. And we okay. got, you know, um, I don't, Ryan's got the numbers back on where we co-harvested, but where we uh, two-pass harvested, it was uh, uh, 12 bushels. So who cares? But it was right. a matter of... Uh, I didn't have a $35 chemical program. Exactly. And I've just discovered a way that I can have a transition crop to organic if I wanted to. Yep. And I had increased yields because of right. the rye and the bean interaction. Yep. So, see, all those things yep. compound, and you just got to think yeah. bigger. And I had a weedy spot out in the field where we had the previous year a lot of giant ragweed. So everybody driving by will see that one weedy spot. But I saw the 98% of the field that had no weeds. Right. Yep. And I was like, wow, this is, yep. this is amazing. So, yep. Uh, and that's like the, like the winter peas, if you grow them by themselves, you know, terrible suppressor of weeds, you know, slow to get started and 
floatiforme canopy, but if you put rye in there, even at a reduced rate, you you know you can just knock everything out, and that rye is an amazing plant. So then, mm-hmm. yeah, you you mitigate a herbicide expense, and then you know if you can combine them together, and you know still try and shoot for one crop, but like my rye and pea, you know, I might have got three bushel of pea on top of the rye, but it didn't ding my rye any yield, and I was, you know, get commanding, I was getting a pretty good price for those winter peas at the time, so, you know, you're adding an extra 30 bucks an acre in revenue just by running two seeds through the <laughs> through the drill, you know, so right. wasn't wasn't an extra pass, wasn't, you know, I had to clean it was the only extra thing. So doing what you do today, how do you do your cleaning and separation? What what do you have and, and what do you dream of? Well, um, see, I never, my dad had this old Clipper 27 and I never thought I'd ever use that thing. But I, you know, it cleans maybe, it's got to be 25 bushel an hour. And so that that's what I had to start with two years ago. And I cleaned 7,000 bushels or something with that. It took me like, Oh man, it, it took me like 30 hours to get a semi done and it was, it was terrible, but that's what I did. And, you know, I was able to get a, you know, it, it was paid for itself. So then I was able to find a nice U. Well, it wasn't nice. I made it nice, but now I got a Clipper, uh super X 298 D. So I got that one. It's actually mounted on a 55 uh, Ford pickup truck. So I like to tinker around in the winter on stuff. So I fixed fix this seed cleaner all up and put it on this truck so it's kind of mobile but you know that improved my capacity to you know 200 250 bushel an hour or something which is huge difference so i could clean a semi or more in a day no problem and mm-hmm. is so that that's a, what i'm using now not familiar with that is that a rotary cleaner is it a sieve cleaner yeah, these, are, these are all the clippers are all uh sift uh scalp screens yep scalp okay. and sift screens with a uh this new one has a top fan on it to suck off the trash and and then a, a lower fan at the very end but like for these um for these inner crops if you put the right screen in there you can scalp off your your crop right away and then continue on cleaning what you want cleaned and then and then uh you know run you'll have to run the other one back through there but but like the rye and the peas you know you just put a screen up there that'll scalp off all the pods and the trash and the peas and then you just keep cleaning your eye. So when it's all said and done, you gotta your eyes all clean, and then you gotta rerun your your peas and change out the screens and stuff. But you got them separated on that very first screen. So so now and some, some of the some of the bigger stuff, I'll, I have uh, just a, a rotary one with no air or anything. Like the chickpeas and flax, you know that one where there's huge difference in sizes. I just run it through a rotary. But where they're if they're similar, then I've been using them. Uh, you know, a sifting cleaner with screens in it. So what's this year's winter project? Um, I'm working on some cars right now. So ah, <laughs> I'm working there you on, go. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on a 60 Rambler station wagon right now. So. Oh. oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that sounds like a real moneymaker there. Yeah, well... Well, it was just not very long ago, Monty said, instead of put buying iron for the field, you could buy fun kind of iron, and that's what oh, that's go. what John's got, so that's good. Yep. <laughs> well, I'll have to send you a picture of this cleaner. I don't know. It's, it's, I would appreciate we spent, that. Oh, we spent all last winter fixing it up, and we re, it's it's super nice. But 
I, I'd appreciate that. We've got an air cleaner, and then we also have a rotary screen cleaner. And, um, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting when we get set up, we have a belt conveyor that we unload bends for, and it's going one way, and we got a seed tender that's going the other way, and, uh, you know, a tractor's <laughs> sitting there running the rotary screen, and the other one, and there's hydraulic hoses and electric cords everywhere. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a pretty sight, but it gets it done. But we, we right. definitely need to improve some efficiencies there. So, yeah, I appreciate the uh, the the input on that. Uh, any other parting thoughts, John? While we while we've got you, um, uh, you you're one of the things that gets a little tough is when you're so far down the road and what you're doing. You know, it's it's tougher to to come back and relate to somebody who's exploring doing this or just getting started. Um, thoughts of encouragement for them and and where they could be in in ten years. Yeah, I, I think you just, um, I think if you can find a piece of soil or, or someone that's um, been managing differently or take a shovel out and look at that soil and then compare it to your own and just see what the difference is um, and see where you can go or see what improvements there are. Um, I think the main focus just you know, if if you can leave something better for the next generation, whether it's your kids or or something, but what what we've got going now, and you know what's happening with the soil and erosion and and water and runoff and all that stuff, you know, I think that needs to change. And farmers are the front lines to that. And I don't, you know, I think I think it needs to come from us and be a movement from within to to change, you know, that perception of what we can do to our soils and you know i i think bottom line it it'll improve your your pocketbook and your equity um down the road but you do have to put in the work up front and it's it's going to take a little bit it's not an immediate reward um and i think if you can surround yourself with positive people and um or a network of like-minded individuals will greatly help you um i think that's other people will drag you down too if if you know and if you get in that environment so i i think having a network or just someone you can call and bounce ideas off that thinks a little bit different is is very helpful you know i i i think the social part of it's tough too for farmers by doing something different like that or being out of the box you know they we have this idea of how things should be farmed and we compare ourselves to the neighbor or whatever and want to farm like he does maybe, but um, I think if we can buck that trend a, a little bit and change the perception and change the perception of what beautiful is too. We perceive beautiful as monoculture fields with no weeds or anything. If you can change that perception into, you know, flowers and insects and diversity and or livestock and, you know, need to and, and a 1960 wagon too so i mean that's yeah, a different yeah. perception of beautiful there john yeah <laughs> no i i agree with you that's um yeah we've got to make weird normal yep. and, and um i and i love your suggestion of if somebody's doing it different get in your truck go there and just root around and and experience what they're doing and uh, right I'm not. Uh, I'm not volunteering you for that, but uh, I'm sure that you would be a person if somebody was genuinely interested. That uh, if they wanted to come, they they they, they could. 
and, and see yeah, what you're sure. up to. Yep. And um, I, I think um, farmers are like that. Um, we want to share what we're doing and, and happy happy to help. So well, I, I really appreciate the, the kind of the vision that you've, that you've set for yourself and your farm and, and how it continues to change and, and get better and better. Um, it's pretty exciting to see what you've, um, done since really last time we've talked and, um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, if you're ever this way, uh, feel free to, to, to stop by in these, you know, uh, wetland areas that we have yeah, over here. Yeah. And, um, uh, I, I'd, I'd sure appreciate the opportunity when we get back to traveling a little more to, uh, swing by and see what you're up to too. So, yep. all right, John, I really appreciate it. Um, uh, this is this has been awesome, and I hope people will. We've dispelled the myth of you don't have enough water to use cover crops, and cover crops are only a cost because there's just it opens up a whole nother world of possibilities when we focus on the soil. Right. Good to see well, you. Thank you for having me. Yep. You Thanks, too. Thanks, John. Thanks. Well, John says it best. It's going to take a little time to build your soils up, but as he says, we can't grow crops in a Dixie cup. We've got to improve our system so our flower pot gets bigger and bigger, holding more water, allowing more diversity, and all of those things working together in a system that builds soil health and efficient water usage and capacity. And did you catch that discussion on improving your system to capture not just rainfall, but the snow? It's these incremental system adjustments that can make such a huge difference. We hope you've gained not only some great nuggets of information, but also some encouragement that there are some real opportunities out there. Have a great day.